All right, let's pray together as we launch in to a big subject. The title on the screen is called The Heart of the Third Angel's Message. So let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for this group that is here in Loma Linda, here at the academy. As we open our Bibles, as we look at the third angel's message, and as we look at Jesus, our Savior, our incredible, wonderful, awesome Savior, I pray that you will speak to all of our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Please bless each of us, warm our hearts, and show us your incredible love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. The heart of the third angel's message. I'd like to start with Revelation. Actually, we can start with the very first verse. Revelation 1, verse 1. Revelation 1, 1 tells us that the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, the greatest book on prophecy ever written, that this book is the revelation of who? Jesus Christ. That's right, of Jesus Christ. Uh, my deepest conviction is that when we understand prophecy the way God wants us to understand it, then Jesus is going to be revealed in the middle of those prophecies. Because the whole book is the revelation of Jesus. Now, when you go to chapter 14, Revelation 14, we have messages that are sent from above, messages represented by three angels. I think most of us know that. The whole movement of the Seventh-day Adventist Church historically was raised up to communicate the three angels' messages to the world. The three angels are found in verses 6 to 12. And here I have a picture on the screen here of three angels. And I believe that these messages represent God's last call to the human family. In the days of Noah, he raised up Noah and gave him a message which was a last call to the world before the flood came. Whenever God does something big, he sends a message. And the three angels' messages, they are as big as it gets. And when these messages are over, in verses 14, 15, and 16, we have a picture of the return of Jesus coming on a white cloud. So here you have the basic sequence on the screen. Verses 6 to 12, we have three angels' messages. Verses 14 to 16, we have the return of Jesus Christ. And this tells us that these messages are the last messages of God to the world before Jesus comes. This is a big message. Uh, I heard a story once about a long time ago when the Advent movement got started, one of the early Adventists was walking in a small town down a little dusty road. And he crossed a man, and the man looked at him, and he said, hey, you Adventists, you Adventists, he said, you Adventists are just little people. And as they crossed each other, uh, the Adventist man thought about that, and thankfully the Lord gave him patience and grace in his heart. And he thought about that, and as they crossed each other, he turned around, and this is what he said. He said, you're right, you're right, we are just little people. But then he held up his Bible, and he said, but we have a big message from God. Amen. 
And that's, that's the truth. We believe that. Uh, I believe that. They're really, if you look at it, it's not a boastful statement. It's just a fact that if you look all around the world, there is only one movement on planet Earth today that is communicating the three angels' messages around this world. There's really only one. And prophecy predicts that when that message is over, that Jesus will return. This is a big message from God. The last message is the message of the third angel. Third angel's message. It's found in verses 9 through 12. Verse 9 says that a third angel followed them, referring to the previous two, and he said with what kind of a voice? With a loud voice, right. So here we have the third angel. That's how we know there's three because here's the third, and he gives a message with a loud voice. Now this message is very, very solemn. And I've got the text on the screen if you don't have a Bible. These are very, very solemn messages. I've been studying these for, for 36 years since I became a Seventh-day Adventist after growing up in a Jewish home in the Hollywood Hills, living a wild, crazy, lost teenage life, surrounded by Hollywood, surrounded by discos, and I got involved in wild living. I did not go to an academy. I went to uh, North Hollywood High School for three years, went to LA Valley College for two years, and when I was 20 years old, God led me to his book. And for the first time in my life, I started reading the Bible. I told you this briefly last night. Uh, then somebody in the providence of God gave me a copy of the book, The Desire of Ages, on the life of Jesus. I read that book and I've never been the same. Amen. Never been the same. I've had a lot of uh, struggles still. I heard a preacher once say, God's not gonna, he's not gonna take us out of the oven half-baked. He's got a lot of work to do in our lives, and the Lord still has a lot of work to do in my life, but he's been doing a lot for me for a long time, and it's just, it's a miracle that I'm here, I tell you. It is a miracle. And I have been studying my Bible, and I've been studying the three angels' messages for 36 years, and I have been deeply impressed, especially with the message of the third angel. So let's just look at it. Verse 9 says, the third angel followed them. And he said with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand, what will happen to that person? The Bible says the same he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. These are very solemn words. They're definitely life or death words. You won't, you won't find anywhere in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, a series of scriptures that are more solemn than these verses. So I've thought a lot about these, and I've read them, I've pondered them, I've prayed over them, I've tried to understand them, and I wanna share some insights with you about the third angel. Uh, one thing we know is the third angel is a warning about worshiping the beast and the image and getting the mark. That's very, very clear. And the mark of the beast, is, it goes in two places. One is the forehead, and the other is the hand. Now, I don't have time to go into all the details about this, but in the Bible, the forehead and the hand 
are used many times, and the forehead represents something. It doesn't mean the mark of the beast is going to go on people's skin. What do you think the forehead represents? Thoughts. Right, it represents your thoughts. It represents your, your mind. It represents your heart. What's going on inside of you? And your, your hand, or the hand, represents people's actions. And if you just ponder this, it's, it's telling us that what God is most concerned about is what's going on inside of people's heads. It's what's going on inside their hearts. It's, it's, a, it's a battle of the mind. And at the end of time, the sad fact is that the majority of the world, instead of worshiping the creator and following the lamb and having Jesus and his love and his truth and his word and his character inside their foreheads, they're going along with the beast and they're getting the mark. And it's a, it's a mind issue. It's a heart issue. It's a soul issue. Now, when the Bible also says that those who get the mark of the beast, it says they will drink the wine of the wrath of God, uh, sometimes, or a lot of times, people have a real hard time with this. They really struggle over this. The wrath of God. You know, what kind of a God is he up there that's going to send his wrath? Now, I've studied this a lot. I've written a book on this, actually, called The Character of God Controversy, and I've come to the conclusion that from all my research in God's book, that God's character is a blend. And we know this from Exodus chapter 34, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, and God came down and met him, and it says in Exodus 34 that the Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed his name to Moses, his character, and he revealed himself as a God of mercy and graciousness and long-suffering. He's abundant in goodness and truth. Uh, he's very forgiving. He forgives the iniquity of thousands. And, and it just goes on and on and on, describing how good and merciful and patient God is. But when you keep reading, it also says, yet he will not clear the guilty. Those who don't turn away from sin, eventually justice will come upon them. And God's character is a blend of mercy and justice rooted in love. That's what the Bible tells us. He's uh, very merciful, but he's also just. And the time is coming at the end of the world after thousands of years of mercy and compassion and grace and forgiveness and offers to humanity to come back to him, to a, our straying world. Eventually, the time is going to come, finally, when the mark of the beast is going to be enforced and if people choose the beast instead of the creator, if they choose the mark instead of uh, Jesus and following the lamb and keeping God's commandments, then eventually God's mercy is going to run out. And as I see it, it's not that God is going to throw a temper tantrum. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't lose, lose control. He doesn't lose self-control and just go crazy up in heaven. But the wrath of God is a final manifestation of the pure, righteous, holy, and just manifestation of his justice against evil. I've come to the conclusion that uh, it is the devil who is evil, not God. Amen. 
that it is the devil who is wicked, not the Lord. But God is a God of, of, uh, of justice as well as mercy. And one of these days, mercy is going to, to run out and justice is going to fall. And the Bible tells us that this wrath, the wrath of God, is going to be poured out on those who get the mark of the beast inside their foreheads and on their, in their hands. And the Bible says, without mixture. Do you see that? The wrath of God is poured out without mixture. Now, what do you think that means? Without mixture of what? Mercy. Of mercy, that's right. That's right. God has shown mercy for a long time. But one of these days, justice is coming. And that justice is coming without a drop of mercy, which is a very, very serious thought. Now, there's a text on this that illustrates this. It's in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. Hebrews 10, 28, if you'd like to turn to that. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. And then we'll go back to Revelation 14. Hebrews 10, 28 looks back into the Old Testament days, and the Bible says that anyone who has rejected, and that's an adamant, persistent rejection, a bold, high-handed rejection of Moses' law, dies without what? Without mercy. That's right, on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So there it is. There does come a time when justice comes without mercy. And that's what the third angel's message is warning the world about. Uh, I heard a story once about a university professor who had a class, and he was an atheist. He had a big class. hope there's no atheists around here. But anyway, this was uh, an atheist professor, and he had a big class, and one day he told his class, he said, class, he said, uh, I don't believe in God, I don't believe there is a God, and I'm going to prove to you today that there's no God up in the sky. And he said, this is how I'm going to do it. I've got a watch here with a stopwatch, and I'm going to push a button, and it's going to count down uh, 60 seconds. And during those 60 seconds, I'm going to curse. I'm going to swear. I'm going to mock God. I'm going to blaspheme him. I'm going to challenge him that if he really exists, to strike me dead. And he said, you just watch that when those 60 seconds are over, there's not going to be a thing that's going to happen because there is no God up in the sky. He's just a figment of people's imaginations. So the class, they held their breath. And he pushed his button, and the second started ticking. And he swore, he cursed, he yelled, he mocked, he challenged God. God, if you're there, strike me dead. And after 60 seconds, guess what happened? That's right, there was silence from heaven. Not a word from the sky. Nothing happened. And then he said, you see, that's proof that there's no God up there. Now, he had a couple of students in the back who were Christians, and they started whispering to each other. And one of them said to the other, he said, he said, that fool, he thinks he can wear out the patience of God in only 60 seconds. <laughs> now, those Christians had it straight. You can't wear out the patience of God in only 60 seconds. You can't wear it out in a day. You can't wear it out in a month. You can hardly wear it out in a year. Uh, We've gone all of our lives, and the Lord's mercy has been with us. Isn't that right? So, somebody once said, we often complain that we don't get what we want, but we should all be thankful that none of us has yet received what we deserve. Amen. 
And that's the truth. Uh, just a couple nights ago, I was talking to my dad and reminiscing about the days when I was so wild and I used to go down into Hollywood and spend time in places that I would never go anymore. Those very dark, dark days. And then I just, uh, we just relived how I became a Christian, how my dad became a Christian. And both of us are just so grateful to, to God for sparing our lives and for keeping us alive and giving us the gift of Jesus. The Lord is good. He's so good. He's good all the time. That's right. And the third angel's message, as we're about to see, is a message of warning. It's a message of mercy, but it's a message uh, very straightforward that says eventually, if people make the wrong decision at the very end of time, if their minds are settled in to going with the beast and the image and getting the mark, then finally there's nothing left. There's nothing left but the wrath of God poured out without mixture without a drop of mercy into the cup. Now, as I've been studying this years ago, I looked at that. I thought, the cup, the cup, the cup. What, what else does the Bible say about the cup? And my mind went to different places. And uh, eventually, well, I discovered that there are numerous cups in the Bible. There's the cup of the wine of Babylon that the harlot holds in Revelation 17. There's the cup that Jesus offered his disciples the night before he died when he offered them the cup of the juice representing his shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. But there was another cup. There's another cup that is highlighted in a garden. In a garden called Gethsemane. That's right. And as, I, as my mind went from the cup in Revelation 14 to the cup of Gethsemane, I mean, it was almost like, a, almost like a movie where the pace was building, where, you know, the music was uh, starting to crescendo as, it was direct, as the Lord was directing me to the heart of the Bible, to the heart of God's revelation in this great controversy that we are in with the devil. And I realized that all throughout history, God's justice has always been tempered with mercy. Always. Except for one time. And that one time was when a cup trembled in the hands of our Savior when he entered into a garden called Gethsemane. And uh, the Lord just led my mind from Revelation 14 to the garden of Gethsemane. And it's also significant as I kept on reading verse 10, back to Revelation 14:10, it talks about those who get the mark of the beast being tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of who? in the presence of the Lamb. And I looked at that and I thought, wow, in the midst of all this fiery language, right in the heart of the third angel's message, the word Lamb surfaces. And the Lamb obviously represents Jesus. And I believe that when this time finally comes in real life and people are actually suffering in the presence of the Lamb, that Jesus is going to look at them and he's not going to be happy. He's probably going to be weeping. 
And he's probably going to be thinking to himself as he looks at the lost who are experiencing justice without a drop of mercy, he's probably going to be thinking to himself that this was not necessary, that none of this had to have happened. And the reason is because he himself, as the lamb, suffered the same thing, even worse, in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. It's a, it's a fact that before God gives the warning of the third angel's message, he tries to communicate to us that he himself drank the cup himself before he warns us about those very same consequences. You know, it's almost like I, I thought of another illustration. My, my little girl, she'll be eight in two days. She's such a precious little thing. Blonde hair, blue eyes. I mean, oh. And all dads love their, I'm sure they love their, their girls, but my little girl, I just, uh, she's so, she's just, she still plays with dolls. I play with dolls sometimes. With her. With her. Because she says, Daddy, will you, will you play with me in my dollhouse? And how can I resist that? She grabs my hand and she pulls me on over. Well, I thought, you know, what if my little girl, Abby, her name's Abby, what if she was out in the middle of, uh, of, a, of a street and there was a, she was playing with her dolls? And let's say some truck was coming, you know, down the street, heading right toward her. What would I do? What would I just say, uh, Abby, psst, Abby, I think it's a good idea to get out of, the, out of the street because there's a truck coming. Would I do that? No. Every, every good parent knows that's not what I would do. I would run out there as fast as I could. I would grab her with both arms. I would yell, Abby, get out of the road. And if she couldn't get out of the road, I'd be right there and I would grab her and I would, I would throw her off the side of the road if I had to. And I would take the truck myself if I had to rather than letting my little girl die. Wouldn't, wouldn't most parents do that? And if you love your kids? And the, the truth is, the reason why God speaks so strongly in the third angel's message is not because he's mean, it's not because he's bad, it's not because he's throwing a temper tantrum, it's not because he's losing self-control, it's because he knows what's coming. He knows what's coming. And he is speaking as loudly as he can to get our attention. Uh, just the other day I was driving on Highway 41 near our house, and we have a lot of uh, turkeys around the house, around the, in, the, in the neighborhood. And I was driving down the highway with my, my wife, and there was this flock of turkeys that were just, you know, walking right in front of the road. And we were quite a ways, and as the car got closer, I thought to myself, I know they're going to get out of the way. And so I, I didn't really feel like I needed to slow down. I just got closer and closer. And you know what? They just, just kept on going along real slow. They didn't pick up the pace. And as I got closer, they didn't pick up the pace. And uh, finally, I did slow down, and they just casually walked off the road. And I thought to myself, brother, you know, they, they just didn't realize what was coming. And I thought about that in, in relationship to the third angel's message, that most people in this world have no idea what's coming. In, in a way, we're kind of like turkeys. You know, we're just walking along, and we don't realize that one of these days, God's offer of mercy is coming to an end. 
and that God's justice is going to fall. And the amazing biblical truth is that God would rather take that bullet himself than have us take it. So he came down here himself. He became a human. He lived a a pure, humble, unselfish life. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, he wrestled with whether he was going to drink that cup for us or not. Let's go to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Matthew does it. The different gospel writers do it. But there's some things in Luke that are just so powerful that I like to really look at it in Luke's gospel. In verse 39, the Bible says that he, he came out, came out of Jerusalem, and he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed. And his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, that fateful place, he said to his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed. And he said, he opened his mouth and he said, Father, the first words out of his mouth were, Father, Father, if it is your will, take this And what's that next word? Take this cup. That's right. Take this cup away from me. Please, Father. Now, what was in that cup? What was in that cup was the wine of the wrath of the justice of God against evil, against sin. Inside that cup, it's a symbolic cup. Obviously, he wasn't holding up a glass but it was a symbolic cup, and inside that cup was the sin of the entire world. You can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. Not just my sin, not just your sin, but everybody's sins. And not just everybody's sins in this generation, but last generation, and the generation before that, and all the way back to Adam and Eve. Jesus was struggling with the sins of the whole world that somehow, mysteriously, were inside that cup, And not only that, but it was the justice of God against those sins that was bubbling in that cup. The pure justice of God. And I don't believe that the Father is just and the Son is merciful. I don't believe that. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. So it was the, it's their mutual character. They came up with a plan, a royal plan Thousands of years ago, before there was ever any sin, they came up with a royal plan together that Jesus would come down here, the Son would leave the Father, come down to the earth, and pay the price. And when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew that this was the plan. But now, he was faced with it face to face. He knew that if he drank that cup, if he, in other words, if he chose to go through with the royal plan that he would be separated from his father and he would experience that pure justice, which is their own justice against evil, 
And the reason is because they hate evil. They do. Uh, if you ask somebody the question, does Jesus hate anything? Does he ever hate anything? Most people would say, no, Jesus doesn't hate anything. But that's not true. When you read the book Desire of Ages, it says Jesus hated only one thing. And that one thing was sin. And the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, says that he loves righteousness, but he hates lawlessness. God hates sin. And he hates it with a passion. And the reason why he hates sin with a passion and why his justice is eventually going to get rid of it is because sin is so bad, it's messed up his universe. It's ruined his plan. It's, it's changed this world from being a garden of Eden to what we see now. What happened in San Bernardino just a few weeks ago? What happened in Paris? What's happening in different places around the world? And, and you could just go on and on and on and on and on. All of this is ultimately because of sin. And God hates sin. And the reason why he hates is because he loves he loves us. He loves his world. He loves people. He loves his universe. And he wants to get rid of sin. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus struggled. Oh, Father, am I, am I really going to do this? Am I really going to do this? And he said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. Was it possible? Was it possible for the Father to take away the cup? Okay, I see heads going yes, and I see heads going no. It, it was possible, but it wasn't possible if we are to be saved. We can't be, we could not be saved. We couldn't go to heaven. We couldn't live forever. We couldn't have new bodies. We couldn't be in a world where there's no more pain, suffering, sorrow, or death. None of this could ever happen if Jesus didn't choose to drink the cup. There was no way out for the Son of God. Now look back at the text. After Jesus prayed his prayer, verse 43 says, an angel appeared to him from heaven. And the angel came and strengthened him. Uh, I believe that if the angel, and I think that was Gabriel, if Gabriel didn't come down and strengthen Jesus in the hour of his, his darkest trial, then he would have died right there on the spot. The pressure would have been so great, he would, have just, he would have just died right there. But the angel came down from heaven. A holy angel came down. And he strengthened him to do it. Keep going, Jesus. Don't give up, Jesus. The plan will work, Jesus. You can do it. You can do it. Verse 44 says, Being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat, the Bible says, became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, I've been told that if you search the medical literature, you can find, it's a long word that uh, applies to a very rare condition where when certain people are under so much mental strain and agony that they have, there have been times where they've actually sweated drops of blood uh, out of their skin. 
out of their foreheads. And that's what Jesus was going through. He was in agony. He prayed more earnestly. His sweat was like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now let me ask you, where was the struggle? Where was the, the heart of the struggle? That's right. It was right here. It's the very same place that the third angel's concerned about, isn't it? The mark of the beast goes right here. And this is where Jesus struggled, right here. And he was struggling in his mind with sin, with the darkness of sin, with the pride of sin, with the evil of sin, the anger of sin, the wickedness of sin, all the wickedness of the sins of the devil and humanity. He was struggling with that inside of his head. Would he drink the cup of justice without a drop of mercy? Verse 45 says he rose up from prayer and then he went to his disciples to see if they were praying for him and what were they doing? They were sleeping, that's right. He found them, he found them sleeping. He found them sleeping. And then Matthew tells us that he went back and he prayed the same thing. He prayed, and he prayed that prayer three times. Three times Jesus prayed. He said, Father, Father, if you're willing, if it's possible to take this cup away, please do it. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Your will be done. I'm going to show you some slides here that are going to kind of break up the... Uh, the tempo for a little bit and try to illustrate what has really spoken to my heart and hopefully it'll speak to your heart. Here's a picture of me and my wife when we, this was our big day. This was the wedding day. Uh, the biggest decision I ever made in my life was when I was 20 years old and I chose to accept Jesus as my savior. The second biggest decision that I ever made was to um, say, I do at the altar when I married Kristen. And I'll tell you about the third biggest moment in my life in a little while. But anyway, uh, I, I didn't get married till I, was, till I was 41, kind of a late bloomer. The reason was because I, was, uh, I had cold feet, was very independent, and I certainly wasn't ready to have a family. On my first date with Krista, this is, a, this is a picture, this is inside Doug Bachelor's Church in Sacramento, Sac Central. My wife was baptized right there in the baptistry. And here's our wedding day. Uh, Gary Gibbs performed the wedding. Brian McMahon, who maybe you know, he, he's an evangelist. He was my best man. And when I finally said, I do, Brian led the, uh, he led all my groomsmen with a, on cue, they all went, yeah. <laughs> that the incorrigible bachelor, Steve Wahlberg, finally got married. And on our first date, one of the things that Kristen said that I really liked about her, among many things, she said, uh, if I ever do get married, I'm going to wait five years before I have kids. And she said, the reason is because I want to get to know my husband, and then I'll have children. And I really liked that, because I wasn't ready for kids. I, I was told that when the baby's born, the boss is born, and your freedom is gone. And that didn't sound too good to me. So somebody said, true. 
So anyway, uh, I thought, okay, you know, well, that's good. If we ever do get married, uh, this is now, remember, first date, uh, at least I'll have five years to uh, get ready for, for a family. So anyway, uh, after about a year and a half of dating, we, I finally got to the altar. I said my vows, and I said, I do. I marry. I choose to marry you. And she said the same for me, to me. And anyway, well, we had uh, four great years. And then when the uh, fifth year was getting, uh, moving into the fifth year, Kristen's maternal instinct was starting to kick in. You know what that's like, ladies? Maybe, maybe you do or maybe you don't. And so anyway, uh, one, one day she came home and she had bought, I think it was at Walmart, she'd bought a pregnancy test for two bucks. She brought it into the house and she took the test in the bathroom. And uh, she came out of the bathroom, she went into the bedroom and she sat down and began to read a book. And she said, honey, the test is in the bathroom. Go take a look. And she said, she said, there's going to be a tube there, and there's a circle there, and if you see two lines inside the tube, then there's a baby inside me. And if you don't see two lines, then I'm not pregnant. And she's reading her book. <laughs> so I went into the bathroom, and I looked at this uh, tube, and I looked at the circle, and I looked closely, and there were two lines in the circle. And I just, I took a deep breath, and I walked out, and I said, honey, there's two lines in the circle. And she dropped her book down, and she looked at me, and she said, I know. And then she picked her, picked her book back up and continued reading. And I'll tell you, my first thought immediately was, thank you, Lord, I've got nine months to get ready for this. That was my first thought. Well, I'm going to make a long story short. Uh, after a number of months, we went in for an ultrasound, and uh, here is the ultrasound. And here's a little face here. You can see that? Little nose looking this way, little hand in front of his ear. If it was a girl, it would have been Hannah. If it was a boy, it would be Seth. And so the nurse, the, the lady there, she said, uh, it's a boy. And I thought, oh, it's, uh, it's Seth. Seth is in there. So from that time on, I would talk to Seth. And as uh, Kristen's getting bigger in the evenings, a lot of times we'll read the Bible and we'll pray and I'll, I'll talk to Seth. I'll say, hey, Seth, Seth, it's your daddy. You're, you're going to be coming out soon. We're looking forward to seeing you. I guess the idea of being a dad was, you know, growing on me. <laughs> and uh, I kept talking to him. We love you, Seth. And we'll be seeing you soon. Well, again, I'll make a long story short. Uh, I was in SoCal, California at the camp meeting of the Central California Conference, speaking in the main auditorium. It was being broadcast live uh, on the internet. And there were TV monitors in front of me. And I was preaching about the seven years of tribulation. <laughs> and right during my sermon, these monitors started flashing. Labor now, labor now, labor now. <laughs> and it's a long story. But Kristen was having complications, and Seth wasn't due for another three weeks. But anyway, the complications, uh, I had to power down my laptop, drive two hours to the hospital, and then I found out what was going on. She was having contractions that lasted for four minutes, and uh, they were concerned about, about Seth's uh, brain, the heir to his brain. And so anyway, they said, we're, we're taking him out. 
and they want daddy to be there. So of course, I was there. And so anyway, uh, the next night, they prepped Kristen, and I was right there. I had my little camera <laughs> trying to focus. There was a whole host of attendants in this little room, and Dr. Thomas, they did a C-section, and Dr. Thomas said, one, two, three, push. And the next thing I knew was this little kid came flying out of my wife's body like a missile. Just, whoom, flying out, this little naked, bloody baby. Naked, bloody baby. And he was screaming. And I thought to myself, well, he, you know, he, he sure has good lungs. That's a good sign. And then they placed him right in front of me, this naked, bloody, screaming baby. And I looked at him, and he had all of his uh, fingers, all of his toes. He looked, you know, pretty normal. I thought, this is good. And then, and then here's what happened. This was, the most, uh, this was the third most amazing moment in my life. I looked at this little baby, and I said, I said, Seth, Seth, it's your daddy. It's your daddy. And the amazing thing is, was Im immediately he stopped crying. Immediately. Stop crying. And he put his two little fingers on his lips. And he went like this. <laughs> and for the benefit of the audio, if you can't see me doing that, uh, what was happening was he was looking around. He was looking around for, for daddy. And I tell you, that moment, it changed me. And I had an instant conversion to being a dad. <laughs> and I fell in love with this little kid. And I still love him today with my whole heart. I'd give anything for my son. And I'd give anything for my daughter, for my wife, for my family. I'm a very a fiercely dedicated dad. I've limited my travels in all my busyness because I want to be home with my wife and my kids. Anyway, when Seth stopped crying, I looked at him, and it wasn't long after that that my mind began to think from this direction to this direction. And I began to think, I, I thought, Father, Seth stopped crying because he, he recognized Daddy's voice. He recognized Daddy's voice. He knew my voice. Because I'd been talking to him as he's getting bigger. He knew. So when I said, Seth, it's your daddy, he stopped crying because he knew the sound of my voice. And I thought, Father, Father, if my little boy knows my voice, Father, you're my father. Help me to know your voice when you talk to me. When you talk to me in the Bible. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Well, I'll show you just a few more quick pictures. <laughs> yeah, isn't that something? Uh, we took uh, Seth, the pediatrician came and examined him, and, and I still remember the pediatrician with a big smile. He said, you have a very healthy little baby. Praise the Lord. God is so good. Well, a year later, we were back at camp meeting. <laughs> Same camp meeting, we had Seth's first year birthday inside the cafeteria of the SoCal California camp meeting. And there he is with his little hat, 
And when we got, came on campus, people are saying, where's the, where's the camp meeting baby? Where's the little baby that was born when the, when the flashing monitor said, labor now, labor now, labor now? And then we said, well, here he is. <laughs> His name's Seth. This is one of my favorite pictures. When he was, uh, I don't know, maybe a little more, more than a year, sitting on my shoulders. I mean, I tell you, that's a happy picture, wouldn't you say? If you would have seen me when I was 19 years old with a glass of wine and a low shirt, tight pants, long hair, with a look on my face, I have one picture where I'm looking and I'm just, it's an evil look. It's an, it was an evil look. The Lord has changed my life. He's made me a Christian. He's given me a family. He's given me a son and a daughter and a wife. So good. There's Abby. She came along a few years later, right the day she was born. It's almost like she's waving, hi, everybody. I'm here. Here's both of them. They get along most of the time. Not all the time, but most of the time. They get along. Here's a fairly recent picture up in the mountains in North Idaho. Uh, it was, it was, that was a couple years ago. Abby's now bigger. Seth is bigger. Seth is 11. He'll be 12 in July. And as I said, Abby will be uh, 8 in two days. Two days. Here's Seth when he was just a little, little baby. And he first learned to pray. He would f- uh, fold his hands and he would pray. And he would say this. He would say, uh, Dear Gigas, he would say Gigas because he couldn't say his, uh, his D's or, or his J's. He, instead of calling me Daddy, he would call me Gagi because he couldn't say Daddy. And Jesus, he, couldn't call, he didn't call him Jesus, he called him Gigas. So he'd pray, he'd say, Dear Gigas, bless Mommy, bless Gagi. In Gigas' name, amen. <laughs> now, the reason why I'm showing you all this is for a reason. Not just because I, I like being a dad. I'm showing you these things for a reason. And here we go. It, it was only when I became a dad that I began to really a- appreciate the father giving his son. I can't imagine what it would be like if my son came to me and he said, Dad, Dad, I have a cup in my hand. And if I drink this cup, I won't be seeing you anymore. Or at least for a long time. Dad, if I drink this cup, we're going to be separated. Will you take this cup away from me? Dad, would you take this cup away from me, Dad? I don't want to drink this cup. I don't know what I'd say. I'm not that unselfish yet. I don't think to be willing to give up my son. I would die for my son, but giving him up, I don't know. Here's a statement from the book, God's Amazing Grace, page 168, devotional book by Ellen White. She she wrote this, she said, no sorrow can bear any comparison with the sorrow of him upon whom the wrath of God fell with overwhelming Have you ever suffered in your life? Have you ever had any sorrows in your life? This statement says that there is no sorrow that you'll ever know in all your years of suffering that bears 
any comparison with the sorrow of him who in the garden of Gethsemane and on the cross experienced the just wrath of God falling upon him with overwhelming force without a drop of mercy. The bottom line is that in the garden of Gethsemane and on the cross, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, chose to take your justice so he could give you his mercy. He chose to be separated from his Father so he could be united to you and to me. There is no love like this kind of love. There is no religion on planet Earth except for the religion of the Bible and of the New Testament that shows the love of a father being willing to give his son to save humanity. I've only known my son for 11 years, my daughter for almost eight years. Jesus and his father knew each other since eternity. It says that the one who was born in Bethlehem, it says that he was the one who would be born in Bethlehem in Micah 5.2, says his origins are from of old, from, from everlasting. It was the everlasting God that became a baby in Bethlehem. It was an everlasting father and an everlasting son that were willing to be separated from each other and to bear the, the horror of sin that we'll never know We'll never know, and we will be contemplating this and meditating upon this and thinking about Jesus because the nail scars will always be there. And we will be, we'll be worshiping him forever and ever and ever and ever, and this will never go, go old. It'll never grow old. And we won't remember all the details of sin, but we will remember enough to know that our Savior was willing to do it all. And that we're there, we're in eternity, we can live forever, we can be with angels, we can be with all the prophets, we can meet the people of the Bible. There's a whole network of beings up there. And we're going to get to know them. And it's all because of a father willing to give his son as a sacrifice for the sin of the world. Jesus prayed a prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed this prayer. He said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. And then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And I tell you, that is the model prayer. We'll never suffer like what Jesus went through, but we can still pray the prayer. We can pray, Father, not my will, but your will be done. You know, the biggest battle that anybody has ever fought and the greatest struggle, it says this in the book Steps to Christ, that the greatest struggle, the greatest battle that was ever fought is the battle against self. It's the struggle to surrender all to the will of God. 
And when the crisis hits and the mark of the beast is enforced and people that get the wrong, get the mark, go with the beast, go with the image, get the mark, ultimately the bottom line is in their foreheads they have chosen not to surrender their entire lives to the God who made them and who paid the price for them. They're not willing to do that. And that's why they're lost. That's why they get the mark in their foreheads and in their hands, which is, the, is a mark of refusing to submit to the authority, to the sovereignty, and to the love of our Creator. That's really, that's really what it's all about. And, and I want to tell you, there is nothing that can reach the forehead or reach the hand or reach the heart that is more powerful than the revelation of what Jesus did in Gethsemane and on the cross for you and for me. And I'm convinced that what the third angel's message is really all about, the heart of it, yes, there's a beast, yes, there's an image, yes, there's a mark, yes, this is going to be enforced at the final, in the final times. Yes, there's the Ten Commandments and the faith of Jesus, which is the conclusion of the third angel's message. But the heart of this is what Jesus did for us in Gethsemane on the cross in paying the price where we have broken the law of God. The mark of the beast is basically the enforcement of violating God's law. And people that go along with this have settled in to being commandment breakers. And how is God going to shift us out of commandment breaking so that we go along with the beast and get the mark? The only way he can do that is by reaching deep, deep, deep into our minds, deep, deep, deep into our hearts, deep into our souls and showing us inside of our souls how much he loves us and what he did for us. And if this revelation of Jesus doesn't penetrate the mind and the heart and get us to, to appreciate him and to say, Lord, I don't want the mark of the beast in my forehead. I don't want to go along with the beast or the image of the mark. I don't want anything of the devil in my head because I want you only. And Gethsemane and the cross will seal it for us. So we will, we will choose by his grace, through his forgiveness and his grace and his power, that when the final crisis hits, you're not going to put a mark in my forehead. Amen. Even if I can't buy or sell, even if I can't provide for my family, even if I can't uh, make a living, Amen. I'm willing to sacrifice it all and to trust that the Lord is going to take care of me and my wife and my kids. See that? And that's what we need. I tell you, that is the power of the third angel's message. That's the power of the third angel's message. That is the message that will prepare us to stand for the law of God, for the seventh-day Sabbath, for the truth of the Bible, and for Jesus Christ when the storm breaks. That is what will help us to stand. One more text. Oh, and I've got that picture there. I thought I had that as a build, but there it is. I, I, somebody showed me this picture the other day, and I thought, this is so, this is so good. Here's this uh, picture of Jesus with a, with a big teddy bear behind him, and here's a little girl with a little teddy bear. And Jesus is asking the girl to give him her little teddy bear. And she says, but I love it, God. 
I love my little teddy bear. I don't, I don't know if I want to give you my little teddy bear. But behind Jesus is a much bigger teddy bear. <laughs> and he says, just trust me. Just trust me. And the point is that if we're willing to give up the little things that we think are so important, Jesus has so much more in store for us if we're willing to say, not my will, but your will be done. I trust you, Lord, that you have my best interest at heart. And you've proven that. You've proven that when you gave your life on the cross. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, the Bible, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and I'm knocking. Knock, knock, knock. If any man hear what? Hears my voice. That's right. We hear his voice as the Holy speaks to us, as the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the message of the Bible. My little boy heard my voice and he stopped crying. As we have read about Gethsemane, as we've read about the third angel, as I've quoted Steps to Christ, and read, uh, quoted God's amazing grace. The question is, do you hear the voice of your God talking to your heart? If any man hears my voice and opens the door, and what does that mean, opens the door? It means open the door of your heart. How, how far should we open the door? Should we open it 50% of the way? 80%? 90%? 95? How about 99%? But just leave a little bit back for ourselves. No. Jesus wants us to give him our whole heart. And here's the, here's the amazing thing. That if you will do that, you'll never be sorry. You'll never be sorry. You will discover. You will discover that giving your whole life to God to live for Him and to do His will is the best choice you'll ever make. And the amazing thing is, is on the other side of that choice, you'll find a happiness that you'll never know. You'll never know until you give your whole heart to your Creator. Whoever opens the door, Jesus says, I will come in. And that's what it's all about. That is the heart of the third angel's message. Third angel warns about justice on those who get the mark. They will drink the cup. But the good news is Jesus already drank the cup. He drank it for you. He drank it for me. And if our hearts are touched and moved and we make the choice to follow him, then we will be on his side when the final crisis hits. And when should we get ready for that final crisis? When the storm hits or before the storm hits? That's right. We've got to get ready now so when the crisis hits, we'll be on the side of Jesus. Wow. May God help us to get ready for what's coming and give our lives to him. Let's close with prayer. Dear Father in heaven, Father, thank you so much for what you've done. I thank you for what you've done for me. 
that I'm still alive and I'm not six feet under the ground. I didn't overdose on LSD or kill myself on one of my crazy, crazy activities. Lord, thank you. You've been so merciful to me and you've rescued me from a life of sin. And you've given me a reason to live, to follow you, to serve Jesus, to try my best to honor you and glorify you. And I pray for everybody here that they will all hear your voice, that you're calling them. You're calling us before the crisis. The call of God is going out before the crisis to come to Jesus, to give Jesus our whole lives, to let him in so we can be forgiven, changed, strengthened, and empowered to live godly, moral, pure lives in these last days through Jesus and his love. Lord, bless us all. Thank you so much for what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's broadcast with Steve Wolberg. We feel privileged to be a part of God's commission to share the gospel message with the world. You too can be a part of our gospel outreach team by supporting broadcasts just like these with your financial gifts. We strive to be careful with every dollar that we receive, knowing these donations are sacred gifts to build up God's kingdom of grace and salvation. To find other great resources or to donate online, go to whitehorsemedia.com or you can call us at 1-800-78-BIBLE. That's 1-800-782-4253. You can follow us on Twitter at Whitehorse7 or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Steve Wolberg. That's Steve, W-O-H-L-B-E-R-G. If you prefer to contact us by mail, write to Whitehorse Media, P.O. Box 1139, Newport, Washington, 99156. Thanks for your support, and may God bless your day.